Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never connected to Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. We're taking a little bit of a journey back to talk about 
some of the things that were critical that the Lord uh, taught me when I first came to Grace Church many years ago. This church is what it is, um, far from perfect, far from everything we ought to be. But this church is what it is because of certain biblical convictions that the Lord pressed upon my heart very early, and He has sustained those convictions through this half a century that we've been together. They have to do with three things, really. One is the um, character of the pastor, what the Lord expected of me. And we looked at a portion of Scripture last week that was very, very foundational in my understanding of the role that I would play. A second very important foundational reality was the character of the church or the life of the church. What should a church be? Why is Grace Church what it is today? And where is the pattern for this? And how did we ever get here? That's so very, very important. When I, as a kid, grew up, of course, I was in church my whole life and had great love and respect for my father, who was my pastor for my my early childhood years. But I always felt like there was something more that a church should be than what I ever saw. And it wasn't just in the church that I was in, but it was in a lot of other churches. I was exposed to many churches. And as I got a little older, preached in many churches, met many pastors, talked with many, went to seminary, heard a lot about the church and what the church should be. But it seemed to me that I had I'd never really seen a church that followed a clear biblical pattern. So after I graduated from seminary, I spent a few years trying to study the New Testament to figure out what a church should be. And the Lord led me particularly to this passage that I read earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you want, you can go back there in your Bible. What Grace Church is now is really the product, even with all our failings, of going down the path that's established here. I knew it was important. I knew it was definitive that, that our church follow this pattern. The first book that I ever had actually published by a bona fide publisher was in 1973, and the first book was called The Church, the Body of Christ. The Church, the Body of Christ. That was a big undertaking for a, a young guy who'd just been here a few years, but I was convinced that church is needed to understand this concept of the church as the body of Christ. I hadn't seen that really lived out in my experience, nor was it clearly instructed to me when I was a student. But by the time I got to Grace, it, it, this was... Number one, in my understanding, we had to follow the pattern of the church as the body of Christ. There are a number of um, metaphors, you would say, or word pictures in the New Testament that give us some idea of what the church should be. Uh, the church is a family. God is our Father. We are His children. The church is a, a bride. Uh, Christ is our bridegroom. Uh, the, the church is um, branches, and we are basically connected to the vine, who is Jesus Christ. The church is a kingdom. Christ is our king, and we are his subjects. Uh, the church is a, 
a group of servants or slaves who acknowledge Jesus as master. I understood all of those pictures, word pictures, but I also understood that all of those, while in the New Testament used to refer to the church, are in the Old Testament used to refer to Israel. All of those metaphors are also found as God identifies His people in the Old Testament. But there was one model for the church, one symbol of the church, one analogy for the church, one pattern for the church that does not appear in the Old Testament, and it is the church as the body of Christ. We don't have that imagery in the Old Testament. But we do have it in Ephesians 4, and it's in verse 12, the end of the verse, the body of Christ. That was very important to me to begin to understand what does that mean, that the church is the body of Christ. Earlier in Ephesians, we are told very clearly that Christ is the head of the church, that He is the one who is head over all things. Back in chapter 1, it says in verse 22 that He who is the head over all things has been given as head to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is to be the body of Christ. This is who we are. This is how we are uniquely identified in the New Testament. And Ephesians has a lot to say about that. As I just noted for you, it talks in chapter 1 about Christ as the head of the church and the church being the body of Christ. Repeats it here in chapter 4 and makes reference to these things in other parts of this same letter. So I came to understand that in order for us to know what the church should be and to define the life of the church, we had to see it as the body of Christ and follow the biblical pattern. And so that was my endeavor from the very, very beginning. I purposed in my heart that as much as was in me, I would endeavor to communicate to the people in in this church that we needed to function as the body of Christ under our glorious head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We were to be faithful to this model. And whatever this church is today, by the mercy and grace of God, half a century later, it is because we have followed this pattern And I think as we think about 50 years and as I look back over it and uh, try to re-grip this foundational truth, it might be an encouragement to you to understand this so you can have the biblical and spiritual explanation for why this church is what it is. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look in particular starting at verse 11, but I want to start at the beginning because I think it all connects so very well. We... um, We are told in the end of chapter 3 that the church is to give glory to God and Christ. To Him be the glory in the church. That's how chapter 3 ends. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is a doxology. This is an outburst of praise. God is to be glorified in His church. Christ is to be glorified in His church. So how does that happen? How how do we get to the point where Christ is glorified in His church? I don't need to tell you that there are a lot of churches that are not a glory to Christ. They're not an honor to God. They don't put Christ on display. 
a lot of churches. In fact, for I suppose the, the normal population of this country or any other, to try to figure out what the church is is an almost impossible task. But the church is to be the place where glory comes to God and glory comes to Christ. How does it get to that point where that is its character, its life? Let's start in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, no matter where Paul might have been in some human jail, and he was in a lot of them, he never saw himself as a prisoner of Rome or any other earthly domain. He was always captive to the Lord. And so as the Lord's prisoner, I implore you, I beg you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You have had a high, high calling. You have been called by God efficaciously into His eternal kingdom, into His eternal family. You have been given eternal life. You have been given all the riches of God poured out in grace both now and forever. You have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in you. All of this and a lot more is laid out in the first chapter of Ephesians. So we are not like the rest of the world. It hasn't appeared yet what we, what we really are. They can't see what we are, but we are the children of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are regenerated, newborn sons of God in this world. We have light and life in the midst of darkness and death. So Paul says, I'm going to beg you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, this actual calling into life in Christ, into salvation. Now, how do you walk worthy? How can you walk worthy of this calling? How can you bring honor to this unparalleled gift that the Lord has given you? It's interesting what he says in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, or better, meekness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You are so highly called. You have been so elevated. God has lifted you above all other humans. He's exalted you to Himself, to His kingdom, into His family forever. This is a high, high calling. How are you to walk worthy of a high calling? Walk in a lowly way. With all humility and meekness, with patience toward people, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here is the key. The church needs to manifest the unity of the Spirit. We, we need to be one. We need to have unity in the Spirit. That unity produced by love. And love is the product of humility, meekness, patience, and tolerance. Only humble people love. Only the meek love. Patience and tolerance or forbearance is what builds strong bonds of love. How are we to walk? We are to walk in humility, 
so that we live in love. We are to live in love because love preserves the unity of the Spirit and creates a binding together in peace. Look, most of us have been in other churches. And we, looking back, we might want to define them as places marked by peace or unity or even love or even humility. But this is exactly what our Lord tells the Apostle Paul to implore us to be. To walk worthy, then, is to be humble, to be meek, to be tolerant of others, and consequently to love others. And out of that love will come unity, and in that unity there will be a sweet harmony of peace. This is what a church should be. And I can, I can just tell you this. This church is, is in that great pattern. This is a church where there is immense love because there is humility, there is meekness, there is patience, and there is tolerance. And when you care enough about people to lower yourself and you care enough about people to consider the issues of your own life less than the issues of others, and when you care about people enough to be patient with all of their weaknesses and even their sins, and when you care enough about people to be tolerant, love flourishes. And in that love, you have unity in the Spirit, and in that unity, you enjoy peace. Nothing is really more painful for a believer than being in a church where pride and conflict and selfishness and division and lovelessness exist. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. So, so that's the objective. So from the very beginning, I'm, I'm saying to myself, how, how is that going to happen? I've never seen a church... That would be the fulfillment of that. How's that going to happen? It must happen because it is the will of the Lord of the church. And it it is consistent with the church's very nature. Look at verse 4. We ought to enjoy this unity. Unity is the theme. Unity of the Spirit. That is a spiritual unity, a heart unity, a unity of love. That ought to be characteristic because... The very nature of the church is defined as one. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times the word one appears. Paul is saying the unity of the Spirit should be the natural result of all those spiritual unities which already exist. We're all one body, the body of Christ. We're all indwelt by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We've all been called to one calling, salvation with an eternal hope. We have one Lord, one faith. 
and one baptism, one God and Father of all. And He is over all and through all and in all. We all have all the same collection of ones. So in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says something similar, summing it up in verse 27. So conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You, you should be one spirit, one mind, striving together to proclaim the glorious faith, the Christian faith contained in the gospel. So we are to be one. How can that happen? How can that be a reality? So many diverse people, so many, so many wills, so many desires, so many ambitions, so much selfishness, so much sin. How do we ever get there? Well, we have to start with the fact that that's the goal and that that goal is connected to our nature because we are all one. But this unity is effective only because, listen carefully, it is a unity of diverse parts. Verse 7. Four times in verse 6, we see the word all. The, the unity, the, the oneness, the spiritual ones are all of ours. We, we all have all of them. But we go now from all of us and what we all possess to each one of us. And now we've moved into a different understanding. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us has been given a gift from Christ. Not salvation, but a spiritual gift. The word is dorea, the word for gift, and it's the Greek word for a free gift. We've been given a free gift. We call it a spiritual gift. Now, they are listed in Romans 12. There's a listing of spiritual gifts. They're listed in 1 Corinthians 12. They're even mentioned in 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11. Some of them are speaking gifts. Some of them are serving gifts. But everybody has a gift. Everybody has a function. In fact, down in verse 16, you can see that the whole body is fit and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part which causes the growth of the body building up itself in love. So it's just like a body. A body is one. A body functions as a unit, but it only functions as a unit when all the diverse parts do what they're supposed to do. It's not like we're all rubber ducks pumped out the same way. Every one of us is unique and individual. We all have a function. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says there are visible gifts and invisible gifts. There are those things you can see in a body, like the external part of the body. You can see those. But he says the more important ones are the ugly ones that are hidden, fortunately. The organs on the inside. They're uglier, but they're, they're more vital. 
But everybody is part of the body. Don't complain about the fact that you're not this part or that part. Recognize the part that you are and be faithful to function so the body can express itself in unity. So verse 7 simply introduces us to the fact that we all have a gift from Christ. I have a gift. It's a complex of various things. And you have a gift. It might be a complex of various things. You can read the list in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Those are just categories of gifts. They're like colors on a palette. And the Lord comes up with His brush and He dips a little in this and a little of that, a little of that, and He paints you. You may have a gift of teaching. There may be hundreds of people in this church who have a gift of teaching. No two teachers will be alike. A gift of teaching might be mixed with a gift of mercy or a gift of wisdom or a gift of giving or a gift of prayer or a gift of leadership. So you are you. You, you like your fingerprints, you are you. And you have a spiritual fingerprint which is unique to you. You are identified in the kingdom of God as having a particular specific role to play. Now, your gift is for the sake of the body, just as every body part is for the sake of the body. In other words, you have been gifted by God to serve the church. I have a gift. Um, my gift, you all know, I, I teach the Bible, I preach the Word of God, and, and I have responsibility for leadership, and I have some other little parts of uh, the gift categories that the Lord has painted uh, into my life that maybe you don't know as well as you know the more public gifts, but, but I'm a complex of those categories like we all are. And my role is to serve the church with those gifts. And that's how the body grows, to serve with humility and meekness and patience and tolerance and love. And as I do that, the, the body grows into unity. So your gift is for the church. So the obvious question, what are you doing? You don't need a hard and fast label for your gift. What is it that your, your, your heart wants you to do? What is it that you can do well to minister to someone else? What, and I'm not talking about human skills. I'm talking about what is it that you can do to build up other people in the faith? That's your gift. Then Paul goes on to say, look, you, you've got to understand something. These gifts are really unique because these are given from Christ. You received your gift from Christ. Now, that ought to raise the stakes a little bit on your sense of responsibility, right? I mean, if you're doing nothing, that, that's, that's a shame. In fact, it's shameful because of what Christ did to provide that gift for you, and this is what he's going to say in verse 8. Therefore, it says, it being the Old Testament in particular, Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. David is using a very common picture to speak of God. The picture is that whenever a king conquered a city, or a country, nation, he would um, come back, ascend on, onto his throne, and he would bring back a host of captives and spoils. And when the king came back and ascended the throne and uh, had the enemies that he had conquered and the spoils that he had brought back, he would then give those spoils to the people who were part of his kingdom. 
That's exactly what Jesus did. Verse 9 sort of applies that to Him. But first of all, the psalm itself is applied to God. And God conquering the Jebusite capital city of Jerusalem. When God conquered Jerusalem, the conquering king, God, comes back with the spoils to distribute to his covenant people. So Christ conquered death and hell and the grave. He ascended, explaining this a little bit in verse 9, because he had descended. He came down in order to win the battle at the cross, and he descended in order that he might ascend. And then verse 10, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, all the created heavens, so that he might fill all things. He came down, he conquered, he took back captives, the souls that he won at the cross, and all the spoils to distribute to his people. He is the conquering hero who gave gifts to his people. Christ ascended back into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit, all the gifts to the church. Magnificent picture. Now he, having accomplished his victory, fills all things, which is another way of saying he's sovereign over everything. He's the head over all things. He is the one of whom Paul says to the Philippians, God gave him a name above every name, the name Lord, that at his name every knee would bow. He is enthroned now as the exalted, triumphant, enthroned Lord who won the great victory over sin and death and hell. He has gone back to heaven and he is going to give gifts to his church so that his church can become his body on the earth and manifest his life before the world. He gives gifts so that we can serve each other. And so that in serving one another, we become manifestly Christ-like in the world. All the gifts, all the gifts that are given to the church are perfectly expressed in Jesus Christ. He was the greatest teacher. He was the greatest preacher. He had the most wisdom, the most mercy, the most grace. He gave the most. He was the greatest leader. You can take all the categories of gifts. They're perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Now, in a way that fills the whole universe with His sovereign glory. But He's given us stewardship of those kinds of gifts that are perfectly expressed in Him. Now, because we have those gifts... As we minister them to each other, Christ is on display. That's leading up to the passage I want you to focus on. Verse 11. He not only gave gifts, but in order to see those gifts fully realized, He had to do something else. He had to give men. And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, as some as pastor-teachers hyphenated, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. 
Even with those spiritual gifts, which we all receive at our salvation, the body of Christ is not going to be what it should be demonstrating Christ in the world unless there are some preachers who perfect the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. That word perfecting, it may in your translation say equipping, is the role of those men mentioned in verse 11. The perfecting of the saints, the equipping of the saints. Katartizo is the Greek verb. It basically means to be restored, to be complete, to be full, to be mature, full-grown, perfect, not sinless perfection, but a kind of maturity, a kind of grown-up spiritual character. This is a word used a lot, katartizo, in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 13.11, we're told, be made perfect, same word. Hebrews 13.21, may the Lord equip you, same word, in every good work. Or 1 Peter 5.10, after you've suffered a while, the Lord will make you perfect. Same word. So this is a very common word. Galatians 6.1, if someone's overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore is the same word. Build him up. Equip him. Bring him to maturity. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says that we are to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So this is the goal of the men given to the church. He not only gave gifts to believers, but in the language of 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he appointed men. He appointed men. The perfection of the saints is the goal. It is the goal of uh, trials. James 1 says after you've been through trials, God will do a perfect work. It's the goal of suffering, 1 Peter 5.10, after you've suffered a while, the Lord make you perfect. It's the goal of Scripture, keep desiring the milk of the Word that you may grow thereby in respect to salvation. So whether it's trials or suffering, persecution, or, or the Word of God in particular, God gears it all to bring us to this kind of spiritual perfection where in Christ-likeness we're using our gifts to put Him on display in the church. Now let's talk about the gifted men just briefly. Apostles and prophets were foundational men. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, we read that God's household, the church, was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Another way to look at the church is as a temple. But the temple, the living temple of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They are foundation stones, Jesus being the cornerstone. The apostles then were foundational men. They were the ones who were with Jesus. They were chosen by Him particularly. 
There are 12 of them. And then Judas drops out, and Matthias is, re- replaces Judas in the beginning of the book of Acts. And later on, the Apostle Paul is the last of the apostles, so there's a total of 13 of them. According to Matthew and Mark and Luke, they had a, a unique ability and calling. They were to preach the Word, they were to cast out demons, and they were to heal the sick. They were given divine power to authenticate their connection to the true and living God. How do you know who the true teachers are? How do you know who the true apostles are? How do you know who really represents God? Those that have power over disease, those that have power over demons, they're preaching the true message from God. They had those duties, preach, cast out demons, and heal the sick. They were companions of Jesus. They're very unique, so unique that Jesus said in Luke 22, 28, 30, they will have 12 thrones in his kingdom when he returns. He will have 12 thrones. Now, I know you're saying, was it Matthias or Paul who gets the 12th throne? I have no idea. I don't have a special revelation on that. But there will be 12 thrones. We know that in Revelation 21:14 it says in the New Jerusalem, the capital city of eternal heaven, there will be 12 foundation stones representing the 12 apostles. So they have a remarkable, unique, not only the foundation of the church in this world, but foundation stones for the New Jerusalem, the capital city of the eternal state. Unique. And they were used by God, along with their associates, to write the New Testament. There are no apostles today. They were chosen by Jesus, given miraculous powers, the signs of an apostle, signs, wonders, mighty deeds, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Hebrews 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation at first spoken to us by those who were with the Lord and then confirmed by signs and wonders? They were foundational. After them came the second group of preachers, the prophets. The prophets were not chosen by Christ, but they were rather identified by the church. And their responsibility was to preach the gospel. They aren't miracle workers as such, but they are preachers of the truth. They are pre-Scripture preachers. The, the New Testament hasn't come together yet, so, so they're preaching what the apostles' doctrine was. They're preaching what the apostles received from the Lord. And occasionally, the Lord even gives them some revelation. But most of the time, they're preaching what had already been revealed to the apostles. The early church was engaged in studying the apostles' doctrine. They were preaching the apostles' doctrine. The goal of the apostles and the goal of the prophets, what is it? It says to perfect the saints. To perfect the saints. That was their goal. That's always the goal. It's always the goal to bring the saints to maturity and to Christ-likeness. Now, historically, they are replaced by evangelists and pastor-teachers. Evangelists would be kind of the, the subsequent uh, apostle-like people who were sent. Apostle comes from verb means to be sent. They're sent out with the gospel. They go to the mission field. They plant churches. Look at Grace Community Church. Through the 50 years that we've been here, how many men have come through this church and gone to the ends of the earth, gone to the far corners of the planet to carry the gospel there, not only to preach to those that are lost, but to train the pastors and churches all over the globe to do the same. They have the heart of an evangelist. They are the ones who are sent to preach the gospel and to train others to preach the gospel. And every church should be marked by them. How amazing is it that after this half a century 
there are people who've come through this church and felt the call of God to be an evangelist, and, and they're somewhere on this planet scattered to every corner. And then they're scattered across this country, planting churches and preaching the gospel in every kind of place where Christ is not named and people need to hear. And then along with those come the teaching shepherds, and they are the ones who shepherd the flock. It's as if the evangelists go out to gather the sheep, and once they're gathered, the evangelist goes back out to gather more sheep, and the, the shepherd teaches them. It's translated pastors here, kind of interesting. It's the word poimen. It's always translated shepherd in the New Testament except here. For some reason, they use the Latin term here, but it's a word that means a teaching shepherd. That's an elder. That's a bishop. And I knew coming into the church that I was a teaching shepherd, that I've been called to the role of a teaching shepherd. It doesn't mean I don't have a responsibility of evangelism. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. So we, we do that, but primarily the role is to feed the flock of God. 1 Peter 5, Acts 20, feed and lead the church which God has purchased with His own blood. We are the feeders and the leaders. Jesus says to Peter three times, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. This is pastoral ministry, to feed the flock of God. That is why we meet, so that you can be fed, so that you can become mature, so that you can be perfected. That's the point of this whole passage. Let's go back to it. So those are the preachers of perfection. Look at the progress to perfection. Verse 12, the gifted men equip the saints. The pastor, teacher, evangelist is for the equipping of the saints. That's what we're for. Certainly, I, I want to reach the lost with the gospel. But the lost are going to be, are going to be reached by you. If you are mature in Christ, the goal of the shepherd is to feed and lead the flock, to protect them from what is destructive, to make sure they get to green pastures and still waters. The gifted men equip the saints for 50 years. That is what I have tried to do, and that's basically all I have really tried to do. I am in labor, like Paul in Galatians 4.19, until Christ is fully formed in you. Colossians 1 says it this way, end of chapter 1, we proclaim Him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's a pastoral role. That's a definition. Paul says, for this purpose also I labor, striving word that means working to the point of sweat and exhaustion, according to His power which mightily works within me. God works within me, and I work to see every man and woman complete in Christ. Equipping the saints. It wasn't just the work of an apostle. At the end of the book of Colossians, we are introduced to a man named Epaphras, chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is a member of the Colossian church, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect 
and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you. And what is this concern? That you be fully completed in Christ. That you grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Gifted men are not given to the church for unbelievers. They're given to the church for believers. They're not given to the church to make the believers feel good about themselves. They're given to the church to make the believers grow to become more like Christ. So if we're going to perfect the saints, what instrument must we use? Well, prayer, that's what Epaphras did. But the key instrument, listen to what Scripture says, and there's no question about this. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be perfect, equipped for every good work. Whether it's the man of God or anybody else, it is the Scripture that is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that makes one equipped for every good work. So how do you equip the saints? You equip the saints with the Word. That's why Paul says to Timothy over and over, preach the Word, preach the Word, give yourself to the Word. says it to Titus, preach the Word, preach it with all authority. That's what the shepherd does. It's a serious responsibility. I have to give an account for it to God, Hebrews says. Uh, it's a serious responsibility. James says whoever offend, doesn't offend uh, with his mouth is a perfect man. So don't be so many teachers because theirs is a greater condemnation. But it's a high calling and a glorious calling at the same time. So using the Word of God to perfect the saints is the call of the shepherd. That's what I've done for 50 years. I am not the explanation for the results. I've just been one instrument for the process. Then the second step, back in Ephesians, the second step is this. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. What happens is when the saints grow up to maturity, they do the work of the ministry. Then their gifts begin to be used. Then their gifts flourish. Then they begin to function in the church with the one another's. Then they do the work of service, diakonia. That's a word that had to do with waiting on tables. But it was a general word for serving. The gifted men perfect the saints. The saints do the work of the ministry. Remember in Acts 4, the apostles said, Look, we give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. You're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to take care of these widows. That's how it works. And so what has happened over the years here is the preaching of the Word of God has matured the saints, and the saints have done the work of the ministry. That started very early, actually. We were still meeting in the chapel decades and decades ago, in the early days. And a man from Chicago came out and wanted to write an article on our church because we were growing so fast. And um, he wrote the article in a national magazine. Some of you have heard this, but the title he gave to the article is The Church with 900 Ministers. At the time, we had about 900 people coming here, and what struck him after interviewing all the people around here, was he couldn't find somebody who wasn't involved. Already in those early years, when we were still in the chapel, the original building, the people had caught the vision to do the work of the ministry. 
They were being perfected by the Word and doing the work of the ministry. People would come to me and say things like, hey, you know, we need this kind of ministry. And I would say, hey, go do that. Great. Go do it. Somebody else would come and say, you know, I've got a friend and we, we would like to start this ministry at the jail. Great. Go do that. Wonderful. Um, and the Lord began to move on the hearts of people. And they began to do the ministry. And that is the way this church is to this day. People doing the work of the ministry. People who are grown up in Christ, who are, who've been matured by the Word. And then there's another step. This obvious, as they begin to do the work of ministry, the body of Christ is built up. As they minister to one another, they're ministering their gifts. And they're ministering those gifts in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they, pro they produce spiritual growth and spiritual development. I minister a gift here, but this church is full of people who minister their gifts to me. And the strength that I bring to you through the gift that God has given me here is in part brought to me by the ministry of so many people around me. So many, many people. That's how the body is built up. Whatever Grace Church is now, it is because gifted men have for all these years taken the Word of God to perfect the saints, to do the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. I am not the explanation for this church. No human being is. The elders, as wonderful as they are, are not the explanation. The explanation is the Spirit of God through the Word of God building up the saints. The saints gifted by Christ Himself do the work of the ministry. Consequently, they build up one another. And what comes out of that is maturity, and what comes out of that is love, and what comes out of that is unity and peace, and that's the testimony that the Lord wants. So the preachers of perfection follow the progress of perfection. And the benefits are amazing. Look at the benefits of this progress, the benefits of this perfection, just briefly. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's amazing, isn't it? That's what a church should look like. The unity of the faith, unity in doctrine, unity in truth, unity in deep knowledge, not superficial knowledge, deep knowledge of the Son of God. And when you, when you know the faith and you're united, united around sound doctrine and you have a deep knowledge of the Son of God because you've gone through all the Gospels time and time again, year after year after year, you have a deep knowledge of the Son of God, you come to a mature person and as you become a mature person, you are coming in the direction of the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You're becoming more like Christ. And that is the benefit. I can't imagine being in any other church if there was a church that was like that. As a believer, I want to be like Christ. And to think that it's possible if I am being equipped by the Word of God so that I can grow up to maturity in the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ, come to a unity of sound doctrine, deep knowledge of the Son of God, and become a mature man 
in some way measuring the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, why would I go somewhere else? That's the goal of everything. That we gaze on His glory and become transformed into His image. Now, there's a result to this. First, the negative result, and then a positive result, just quickly. When you come to the unity of faith, that is, you're united around sound doctrine, and you have this deep knowledge of the Son of God, and you are mature, and you are being shaped like Christ in His fullness. The, the first result, you are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Who does all that? Satan and all his emissaries. So, so the first result of this kind of maturity of a church is that, that it is solid in its doctrine, no longer gullible, no longer undiscerning, no longer victimized, tossed by every wind of doctrine, by the kubeya, the trickery of men and their crafty, cunning deception. That's a marvelous thing, isn't it? What he's saying is when you're a part of that kind of church, you have discernment. You're not susceptible to error. You're safe from being seduced by saying you're a spiritual young man who's overcome the wicked one because the Word of God abides in you and you are strong. And then there's a positive result. Verse 15, you speak the truth in love. You know the truth, so you're not subject to error. And you also speak the truth. And you speak it in love. You speak it in love because Christ's spoken in love and you're Christ-like. That's how a church should be. It should be basically discerning so it is not seduced by false doctrine. And it should be evangelistic, speaking the truth in love. Truth is everything. If you have the truth, you're not susceptible to lies. If you have the truth, you can speak it. And if you're characterized by love, you will speak it in love. And just to sum it up, verses 15 and 16, Paul pulls it together. So here it is. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In love. Do you notice how important love is? End of verse 2. In love. End of verse 16. In love. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have what? Love one for another. A church 
that follows this divine pattern will be known not, not only for its sound doctrine, but more, more characteristically. It'll be known by its love. And I can just tell you, that is the reputation of this church. There are people who think, well, never having been here, you know, MacArthur's a strong preacher and he's you know, very opinionated and dogmatic and he's been there for 50 years. That must be a hard place. Those people must be as tough as leather, listening to all that doctrine all the time. Strong preaching and sound doctrine doesn't make hard people. It makes soft people. It makes loving people. And I think that is the surprise for people who haven't been here. Every year, new people remark, not about the, the doctrine or the teaching, but about how much love they sense in this church. That puts Christ on display. This church is what it is, not because of me, but because the Lord laid a pattern down in His Word and said, if the, if the pastor teacher and the evangelist, the faithful men, will perfect the saints through the Word, they'll do the work of the ministry, the body will be built up, and the body will be built up to the degree that it becomes like Christ. It will be discerning, safe from false doctrine, and it will be able to speak the truth in love. And it will be characterized by love because Christ himself is characterized by love, right? So the more you are like him, the more you are truth and love manifest. Father, thank you for our morning together. Um, just wonderful to think back through all these years and how you have brought us all to this hour. Amazing, amazing that you have, again, vindicated your word. You said this is how to do it, and we, we tried, failing frequently, but we tried to follow the pattern. And here we are half a century later, and, and we can see that this church is marked by love and truth. These folks love you Deeply, they love each other. They love the Word. And this brings you glory. And that's the reason for all of it, that you might be glorified in your church. Be glorified in our lives and may the future be far more wonderful for this church than the past. We commit the future to you to follow the same path to see Christ honored in His church. In His name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up. 
love the son of man. Trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust, Jesus is the king so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, no surprise, I'm back in your section with Jesus, his death, burial and resurrection. More power than gravity, his knowledge and strategies confound the academy. Bow to his majesty, he paid sin salary, took our blame on Calvary. Those who love his name, spread his fame is the policy. All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice. Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife. What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth. The gospel is not fake news. Our debt is sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed. Medicine, we got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Stand up, hand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Stop and listen to my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not traditional, kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction, my proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proposition is my suspicion, we drop the mission. Not to this, but the Word of God is it not sufficient. The doctrine is that the gospel fixes. Is our shot condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the Lamb. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we're too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then, up, hands up, if you truly love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the Son of Man, trust, Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up, Local Flood? This is Ken Ham, and we've produced 
the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. Many Christians believe the flood of Noah's day was just a local flood. Now, where does this idea come from? Well, definitely not from the Bible. It's an attempt to fit the secular idea of millions of years into the Bible. You see, if there was a global flood, it would lay down rock layers we see all over the earth. And yet it's those rock layers that are interpreted as being millions of years old. A global flood washes away the millions of years. Those who believe the flood was local start with these ideas from outside scripture. They then reinterpret God's clear word to make it match those ideas. But fallible man should not be our authority. Want to learn more about Noah's Ark and Noah's Flood? Visit our website, AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change I was thinking just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance, even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance that existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan, we changed many times in one lifespan, I've changed even since this song began, Lord I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last, you are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past, as long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed Lord. As long ago, as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same, immutable, beautiful, you never change, never Never change, never change. When I think about 
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. Would Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never Was the flood local? This is Ken Ham with a passion for sharing God's word with the world. Yesterday we learned the idea of a local flood of Noah's day comes from outside the Bible. But when we start with the Bible, it's clear. The flood was global. Genesis tells us that during the flood, all the high hills were covered with water. Now how is this possible if it wasn't a global flood? And why did Noah need to build an ark? The animals, birds, and even Noah and his family could have just moved out of the area. Also, how could every land-dwelling thing be destroyed? A local flood wouldn't destroy everything. And God said he'd never send another flood like it. But there have been thousands of local floods since then. The idea of a local flood? It ignores the Bible's clear teaching. It was global. Learn more about our full-size Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky at AnswersRadio.com. Sign up for daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. This little light, this little light, gonna let it shine, let it shine, gonna let it shine, shine, shine.
Noah's Ark a box? This is Ken Ham, author of the new book on effective evangelism called Gospel Reset. In 2016, we opened our full-size Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky. Now, the Ark is a massive wooden ship. I sometimes get asked why we didn't build the Ark in the shape of a box. Well, the Bible doesn't give us very many details about what the Ark actually looked like. We just know the dimensions and a few other small features. And these dimensions don't imply it was box-shaped. After all, we can use dimensions to describe a car, but that doesn't mean it's box-shaped. We designed our Ark as a ship because that shape provides great comfort and stability for the Ark's passengers. But since the Bible doesn't tell us, we can't be dogmatic about the Ark's shape. View a full transcript of this program or listen to it again at AnswersRadio.com and sign up for daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
like Noah's Ark actually float? Well, with the right design, the Ark would have no problems floating for five months before it landed on the mountains of Ararat. Ancient cultures used to build huge wooden ships that successfully floated. Actually, as recently as a century ago, there was a wooden schooner, the Wyoming, in use. Now, skeptics often bring up the Wyoming to say the Ark could never have floated because this wooden ship twisted in the water and sank. What they don't tell you is that this ship transported thousands of tons of coal for 14 years before it sank. History shows us that properly designed wooden ships can certainly float. Want to discover more about God's Word, the Flood, the Ark, and more? Visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You can also listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com.
nothing left Of in Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame church compromise. Today there are millions of species. Therefore many skeptics claim there's no way they'd all fit on the ark. Well, they're right. But Noah didn't have to cram millions of species onto the ark. You see, God told Noah to take two of every kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing animal. Now research has shown that the kind is roughly equivalent to family in our modern classification system. So Noah didn't need two tigers, two lions and two leopards. He only needed two of the cat kind. And remember, he only needed the land animal kind. So how many animals did Noah need? Probably less than 7,000. There was plenty of room on the ark. Learn about Noah's Ark and the Flood at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the Ark Encounter with its full-size Noah's Ark in Northern Kentucky at AnswersRadio.com.
dinosaurs, the ark, and Noah's flood. Were dinosaurs on the ark? Well, the answer is yes. You see, the Bible tells us two of every kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing animal were on the ark. And that description includes dinosaurs. But would they fit on the ark? Well, keep a few things in mind. First, the ark was a huge ship. Second, most dinosaurs weren't huge. The average size of a dinosaur, about the size of a buffalo. And some were even as small as chickens. And lastly, even the biggest dinosaurs started out small, so God probably brought so-called teenagers to Noah to take on the ark with him. So could Noah fit dinosaurs on the ark? Absolutely. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
because his wife works at a Christian school that does not allow gay students and requires employees to affirm a biblical view of marriage. Imagine a Christian school that teaches what the Bible says. Yet Lady Gaga said, you are the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. I am a Christian woman, and what I do know about Christianity is that we bear no prejudice and everybody is welcome. So Lady Gaga says she's a Christian. Let's ignore that she's hardly ever dressed. She blasphemes God, and her music and videos are raunchy. Setting that aside, please, Lady Gaga does not meet her own standard of Christianity. She said, we bear no prejudice, and everybody is welcome. Except for Mike Pence, his wife, and everyone who believes as they do, right? Romans 2.1 says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Plenty of people came to Jesus and claimed to be children of God. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When the people argued, Jesus said, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So who is a Christian? Everyone who believes the word of Christ, and whoever believes will do what he said in the Bible when we understand the text. That was... That was what... WWTT when we understand text and you can find them on YouTube and their website www.utt.com that's www.utt.com and now we're playing something this is from from Wretched it says how we know the Bible is supernatural so you know, truth be told would you please indulge me of course, for maybe like two minutes. Yeah. Because I'm just going to, I want to preach at you for a moment. No, go for it. I want to hear you do but that. This, I will. Is, this is addressing the Bible's veracity. Here's how you can know the Bible is true. I've shared that we've talked about Adam and Eve being two naked vegetarians living in a garden with a river and two trees. Yeah. God gave them a law. They sinned. What did they do? They tried to cover their shame by themselves with fig leaves. Yeah. God sheds blood for the first time covering their sins. In other words, human beings can't cover their own shame. God must do it. Yeah. Now, the Bible continues. You see a story of Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. What was the problem? He was upset because he offered vegetables. It wasn't a pleasing sacrifice to God. God wants a sacrifice of blood. Yeah. The story of Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember? Kill your only beloved son. So what yes. happens? They go marching up a hill called Moriah. Yep. The son is carrying the wood of the sacrifice on his back and he asks, Father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says the Lord will provide and just as this father is about to kill his beloved son, God says stop. The next time we visit that same mountain, it is the very mountain on which Jesus Christ was crucified. The father did not stop. When you read the Mosaic Law, Passover, an unblemished lamb had to be with the people for a short amount of time. Why? So that its blood could be spilt for the covering of sins. Yeah. We see that with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice of blood for sins. Isaiah describes a man who was so beaten, we thought that he was being led like a lamb to the slaughter for his own sins, but he was dying for the sins of his people. Yeah. 700 years later, John the Baptist points at Jesus Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
all of those bloody lamb sacrifice stories were a scarlet thread in the Old Testament pointing to the better sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Yeah. The Old Testament keeps going. When, the, when God saw that everybody was sinning, he promised, I'm going to wipe out this world with a flood, but he offered an ark of salvation. Peter tells us that ark is Christ. There was one door to go into that boat. Jesus Christ is the door. Run through Jesus to get to the ark of your salvation. Yeah. There's a story when the Jews are wandering in the desert. They were being naughty. They were being sinful. God yeah. sends snakes to bite them. Yeah. But he tells Moses, fashion a serpent, raise it on a pole, and if people will look to the curse to the thing that is the response to their sins, they will live. Jesus Christ said, just as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be raised up. So if you look at Christ, the sting of death will not take hold of you. All of these stories in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the place where God dwells, Jesus tabernacles with us. He is the ladder that we see with Jacob's ladder, where he said angels descending up and down on him. He is our surety. He is our city of refuge. All of these stories, he's our kinsman redeemer. The story of Ruth and Boaz, he redeems Ruth. Do you know that that was like the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus Christ? There's one lineage in the Bible. Yeah. It follows the lineage of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now, I talked about the lambs. In the end, here's what the Bible says. Yeah. God is going to wrap up this whole show, and he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And this time when Jesus returns, it's not as a meek lamb. He's coming back as a roaring lion who is going to crush his enemies and put them under his feet. You will cry out to the mountains, crush me, fall on me, rather than facing the wrath of the lamb. Yeah. He's going to redeem his people. He's going to restore the earth. And we see in Revelation 21 and 22, there's going to be a garden, there's going to be a river and two trees, and God will dwell with his people. Yeah. Do you see the bookends of the Bible? Do you see how everything is pointing to Christ? Yeah. Now, that story that I just shared with you, Lickety Split, written over 1,400 years, 40 different authors, three different languages on three different continents. My friend, there is no way that story was concocted by man. That's, once again, that's from Wretched. You find them at wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-T-D.org. And here is another one. This one's called Ben Shapiro Claims the Old Testament Never Protected Jesus. Courtesy of Ben Shapiro, talking about the left side of our book, which is not separated from but a part of the Bible. The Old and New Testaments fit together seamlessly. The Bible is elegant from Genesis to Revelation. Phil Johnson joining us to respond to Ben Shapiro doing a debate, an interview with an atheist, Michael Shermer, explaining what he believes about Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah is a different figure than anything that exists inside Judaism. So when people say that, the, that Judaism predicts the, the coming of Christ, uh, the, the change in the nature of what Christ is, what a Messiah would be, is different from Judaism to Christianity. So Judaism never posited that there would be God come to form in physical form, come to earth in physical form, and then you know acting out in the world in in that way. Judaism posits that God is beyond space and time. Occasionally, He intervenes in history, but He doesn't take physical form. as one of the key beliefs of Judaism actually is an right. incorporeal God. Uh, so that means that. It's it's a the the idea is is actually foreign to Judaism of of a merged God man uh, who then is who is God in physical form but then dies and is resurrected and all this. 
much there. Yeah, again, again, it's he's talking about Jewish tradition, not the Jewish scriptures. I, I wish he could, you know, sort of get away from the Jewish tradition. And just look at the scriptures with fresh eyes. And, and you know, it kind of reminds me of Eastern Orthodox folks. Very much. They, they quote the early church fathers more yep. than the Bible. Yeah, that's does right. it With rabbis. That's right. And that's, that's always been a problem in Judaism. And it's one of the things Jesus himself confronted uh, when he scolded the Pharisees and said, you know, you've used your tradition to nullify the word of God. And that's exactly what you just heard in that clip where he's saying the same thing those Pharisees would have said. Jesus can't be our Messiah because he doesn't fit the traditional Jewish view of what the Messiah is supposed to be. Okay, so does the Old Testament point to some sort of God-man that would rescue people from their sins? Well, all you have to do is read the first, uh, the first chapter of Hebrews to see that uh, uh, the Old Testament is full of references they're, they are they are sometimes shrouded in mystery. Type, types and shadows. He's yeah. better Melchizedek, a better high priest, right. better than the angels, etc. Like all of all of uh, prophecy, I think is is somewhat mysterious, so that you recognize it when it happens. You don't necessarily predict it, you know, ahead of time. You can't can't look at Bible prophecy and and you know give dates and times and, and, and you know exactly. And typology is tricky. John Calvin said that God pratters to us. He gives us right. pictures like the Exodus. It's, you know, there's a picture in that yeah. of redemption. All right. I couldn't help but think about Isaiah 53. Yeah, well, that's the key passage, actually, yeah. Let me just scan over this. He was despised, rejected by man, a man of sorrows, despised. He was born our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We, like sheep, have gone astray. He was oppressed and afflicted. We thought that he was dying for his own sins, but he was actually dying for the sins of his people. That verse tells us that at least this Messiah is going to be the atoner for sin. Right. No question. What other verses tell us in the Old Testament this Messiah would be God? Well, I would think of, uh, for example, Micah 5, 2, the famous passage that predicts Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And it refers to him as the one whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So he's an everlasting being, being born in Bethlehem. Uh, that's pretty clear, I think. And then Isaiah, the other Christmas prophecies, Isaiah 9, 6, for example, uh, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He... Uh, those are clearly titles of deity. So, so again, Ben not reading his Bible as much as he's reading the rabbis, coming up with a completely different understanding of Messiah, therefore he rejects Jesus Christ, which is a huge bummer. Here's another one from Richard. This is, I'm kind of ashamed to be Irish right now. So today we're on the streets of Dublin to discuss Simon Harris's abortion bill and find out just how much people know about it. Can I ask you if you voted in the referendum on the 8th Amendment? I did. And can I ask you how you voted? For the abortion. You voted yes? Yes. Yeah. One more? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, against the referendum. Uh, I voted for to repeal the 8th Amendment. For abortion. You voted yes? Yes. Yeah. I actually wasn't here, but my vote would have been with abortion. So that's my opinion on it. I would have been like pro ah. choice with it. Um, uh, there's no brotherhood. Nobody has the right to take the prescription rights and so on. You'd be surprised to hear that the abortion bill in the doll will actually allow abortion up until birth for babies with profound disabilities. Sir, that's not on. No, 
And took this heart of stone and broke it up in white
day you hot, the next day you not. One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah. What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not. One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah. Better plan for the future, kid. Time catches up to everyone, no matter who yeah. it is. Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they want to know. Eventually we learn that they all come and go. Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars. Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up. I remember watching Jordan's Hall of Fame speech. Thinking this is what it's like to watch the lame reach and gasp But he tries to grasp what lies in the past Never to return, what lies in the past Did he tell himself, was he lost or sober? Did he know it was all but over? The moment that AI crossed him over If I could be like, didn't include dying light Let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike Nowadays he's known for being all weird But back in 88, nobody was more feared at the peak of his powers, his opponents would retreat in moments he would eat and devour. Snuffed with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. Pride brings us to justice. You puffed up with smugness? You gonna meet Buster Douglas. Amazing that, which blazed like petrol. The new praise that made the waves in the metro. Was praised for days, but just a phase like retro. And phase like echoes. who struggle and they struggle alone because of the fact that they suffer, whether it be physical ailments, whether it be anxiety, depression, just stress of life. So many Christians struggle with suffering and yet they do it alone because most of us are too ashamed to let others know that we're struggling. 
we struggle alone because we think that there's something wrong. As Christians, we shouldn't be struggling at all. We should just have the answers, and yet that's not the case. There's many of us who struggle, whether it be within our marriage, whether it be with our children, whether it be with physical ailments. I want to let you know of a conference coming to Freehold, New Jersey, to help with this. It is called the Sanctification Through Suffering Conference. It is going to be held at Chinese American Bible Church in Freehold, New Jersey. You can get all the information and the speakers. The speakers will be Justin Peters, who if you know him, you know he struggles physically, Frank Mullis, Colleen Sharp, and Joe Suazo. And we will have this conference. You can get all the details and register at strivingforeternity.org slash conference dash on dash suffering. So it's strivingforeternity.org slash conference dash on dash suffering. Get all the details and I hope to see you there. This podcast is part of the Striving for Eternity ministry. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar to your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Like it says, go to strivingforeternity.org. That is the wrap report. And that's all for the show. We're going to go out with Yancy and friends with the B.O.B.L.E. Bye for now.